Coming on the Agony Column podcast, author Richard Morgan is no stranger to controversy. In vogue at the moment, there's this idea that you, you mustn't upset religious people, you know. You, you must take their ideas seriously. Why? Why is that? Wake up and smell the burning flesh. If a guy comes in and says he's been abducted by aliens, you don't take him seriously. If a guy comes in and says he's been talking to Jesus on the phone, you don't take him seriously. It's your wake-up call. Coming on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. The phone. He rolled awake in the still darkened room, convinced he'd only just closed his eyes. Steady blue glow digits at the bedside disputed the impression. 1709. He'd slept through the day. He held up his wrist, peering stupidly at the watch he'd forgotten to take off, as if a hotel clock could somehow be wrong. The wrist ached from the fumbling blow he'd hit Merrin with. He turned it a little, flexing. Might even be. Phone. Answer the fucking... He groped for it, dragged the audio receiver up to his ear. Yeah, what? Masalis? A voice he should know, but sleep-scrambled. Didn't. Is that you? Who the fuck is this? Ah, so it is you. The name came just ahead of his own belated recognition of the measured tones. Gianfranco di Palma here, Brussels office. Carl sat up in bed, frowning. What do you want? I have just been speaking to an agent Nicholson in New York. De Palma's perfect, barely-accented UN English floated urbanely down the line. I understand that Colin have no further use for your services and that they have arranged that all charges against you in the Republic will be dropped forthwith. It seems you'll be returning to Europe very shortly. Yeah? News to me. Well, I don't think we need to wait around on formalities. Uh, I'll have uh, an, a UN GLA shuttle dispatched to SFO tonight. If you would care to be at the suborbital terminal around midnight? No, I wouldn't. I am sorry? South Florida State swirled up into his mind like dirty water backing up from a blocked drain. A sudden decision gripped him, cheery as the lettering on his stigma jacket. I said you can fuck off, De Palma. Write it down. Fuck. Right. Off. You let me sit in a Jesus land jail for four months, and I'd still be there for all the fucking effort you made to get me out, and you still owe me expenses from fucking January! And just like that, out of nowhere, he was furious, trembling with the sudden rage. So don't think for one fucking moment I'm going to jump into line just because you finally got your dick out of your own ass. I am not done here. I am very far from done here, and I'll come home when I'm fucking good and ready. There was a stiff pause at the other end of the line. You understand, I assume, said De Palma silkily, that you are not authorised to operate without UNGLA jurisdiction. Of course, your time is your own to dispose of, but we cannot agree to you having any further professional contact with Colin or the Rim State Security Corps in the interest of... What's the matter with you, De Palma? Don't you have a pen there? I told you to fuck off. You wanted me to spell it? I strongly advise you not to take this attitude. Yeah? Well, I strongly advise you to go and get a caustic soda enema. Let's see which of us takes direction best, shall we? He broke the connection, sat staring at the phone for a while. Richard Morgan is the author of Altered Carbon, winner of the Philip K. Dick Award. His new novel is titled Black Man in the UK and has been released in the United States as a 13. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Thanks. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Rick. Always a pleasure. This is a really interesting book on a number of levels. It's a little bit different from all your books. It, it feels richer, fuller longer, your sense of pacing is different. How did that happen? Uh, well, that's a really good question. Um, thank you. Thank you for all the compliments. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think I would admit that stylistically the book is a step up. I, I sort of, you know, you, you always hope that your next book is going to be better than the one you've just written, and you you hopefully learn your trade as you go along. So I, I, I think in that sense, yes, it's it's a, a if you like a richer book. It's there's more in it, and it's it's better balanced, better put together. It's also a much more uh, talky book than previous ones. Uh, there's a lot of there's more this, despite the the sort of lashings of ultraviolence. Uh, it is fundamentally a book of ideas. It's really about concepts, and you know, in order to warn uh, my readers out there who might be expecting just a you know a gore fest, an awful lot of this book involves a bunch of people just sitting around talking. Uh, and in fact, central to the book is a a relationship between two people and really the book is about the two of them thrashing out their relationship and trying to work out what they mean to each other and why that was intentional because I, I I sort of completed three Kovach novels I'd done Market Forces which is very fast and and headlong and I wanted to try something a bit more considered and I'd also just got done with writing uh, comic books for Marvel uh, where obviously the, the sort of the level of consideration per page is pretty low so everything in me wanted to do something a bit more thoughtful a bit more a bit slower a bit a bit more dense maybe i had an enormous stack of different ideas that i was interested in and playing with there were issues about genetics about american politics um about gender uh, a whole stack of stuff and so I, I mean, did what I usually do, which is to sit down and just start writing something uh, and then see where it goes. And where it went was a very uh, kind of jagged path. It went all over the place and took a very long time to kind of gather the kittens back into, uh, into the enclosure, as it were. Uh, that's a Murakami uh, metaphor, I think, that's stolen there. Thank you, Haruki. Uh, yeah, so it, it took a long time to put together. But, and a, a number of, of people have said so far that it, they feel that it's a bit unbalanced, that it, the pacing is uneven because, and again, what that is really down to is the fact that there's a lot of talking around, there's a lot of exposition and then there are these sudden snaps to to violent chases, fights, murders, you know, and, and so forth. I'm not sure if that's, you know, me screwing up the pacing or, you know, a conscious desire to balance those two things out and, and, I'm, and of course I'm, I'm not really in a position to judge how well I've done that that's, that's something that the, the readers will have to make up their mind about but it's it, it, yeah I mean it was it was a more deliberate book I think than anything I've written so far tell us a little bit about the setup of the book it, it's a fairly simple and straightforward setup I remember when you told me back at Worldcon seemed... yeah yeah it's it's uh, I mean it, it's set a hundred years from now and the principal factor to be considered is that we've had a hundred years of uh, genetic experimentation uh, messing around with with human genes and this has been done with very little oversight and uh, as a result you've ended up with a number of human beings who are genetically modified not in in the sense of them being you know sort of hulking great muscular brutes or, or you know incredibly fast or none of the sort of standard SF ideas what's been changed really is the modular configuration of of their brains they've been rewired in you know in as an embryo as embryos or before embryos they've been rewired at the point of of conception uh to have certain tendencies certain enhanced tendencies and those tendencies vary depending on what the experiment was about you've got some who are for example have been designed to be very compliant and sort of do do what they're told you've got some who are designed to be very sexual uh, you've got some, and these are the ones we're mostly concerned with, who've been all, uh, engineered to be very, very violent uh, or to be have a capacity for violence that freed from the sort of standard issue remorse and, 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 and sort of social factors that, that usually tie it down in normal humans. 
And uh, these guys were designed as soldiers, um, mainly because there was a feeling that the, the kind of ordinary human soldiers weren't suitable any, any longer because the Western world was facing enemies who just had the edge in terms of desperation. Anyway, the, these guys, the 13s they're called, uh, they, along with all the other uh, genetically, modified, genetically modified humans, uh, have become a problem. And after a century of, of, you know, sort of no oversight, finally enough people have seen sense that the oversight has been brought to bear and the, the, we're dealing with the aftermath of this situation. So the story really concerns one of these guys who has been used for military purposes and is now on the scrap heap along with the rest. Uh, and it's how he's coping with, with life in the aftermath, really. And, and how everybody, the whole human race, and especially the, these modified humans, how they're dealing with the aftermath of, of, of this century of messing about. The concept of the humans, especially these soldiers, divorced from the restraints of civilization is, is really fascinating. Is that based on, on research? Or on, it sounds like it's something out of sociological research. It's fascinating stuff. Well, it, it's, it's, I borrowed uh, liberally from a lot of reading I've been doing on, on human genetics. It has its inspiration in reality, but it, it's very much... I mean, I've taken it for a very long walk, and I certainly wouldn't want to sort of claim that <laughs> the stuff that I read uh, ties directly to what I've done with this. Basically, there is a theory about, and it's not. It's, it was written in a paper that, to my knowledge, hasn't yet seen academic publication, so, I mean, it's, it's a fringe thing. Th there's an idea that the human capacity for aggression has actually shrunk over the last 15,000 years to a surprisingly radical extent. And the guys who've, who've um, come up with this idea, what they think has happened is basically that as humans have gone from a sort of roving hunter-gatherer lifestyle and become increasingly settled and started to live together in, in, more, in denser communities and also adopted agriculture to a greater or lesser extent, what's happened is tendencies that might work quite well in a small hunter-gatherer group, uh, like, for example, extreme and ungovernable violence, will work much less well in this area. And the reason for that basically is because once you have a society, people have to do what they're told, because uh, otherwise it doesn't work. And uh, the, the suggestion that's being made here really is that over time, the, the people within these, these sort of uh, seed societies, the, these kind of agricultural societies as they're beginning to grow up, the, the, the ones who wouldn't fit in, the ones who won't do what they're told, and the ones who are sort of sporadically violent for no good reason, these guys get bred out. They either get kicked out of the tribe, they're exiled, they're sent away, or they're just murdered or whatever. And the, the, guy, the, the guy who's been associated with this in the reading I've done, a guy called Richard Rangham, who's actually a specialist in, in studying bonobos, you know, the pygmy chimpanzees in Africa, he... Um, ties this in with something that's, that he has, has come up in, in uh, sort of primitive hunter-gatherer societies that still exist in places like Papua New Guinea, where there's an enduring tendency for, for, to have a fear of, of what they call witches. Now, these are usually men, they're male witches, but this fear of, of these sort of, in, they're, they're kind of evil people, they're witches, but there's no real explanation for why they are. You know, there's a sort of supernatural tang to the, to, to, the, to this thing. But there's, it's never really very clear why these people are, you know, a problem. Um, but anyway, they, they very often get murdered, and the explanation is, oh, he was a witch. And what Rangham seemed... From, I say, I'm reading this secondhand through a Matt Ridley book where, where Rangham's theories are mentioned. What seems to be the, the thrust of this is this idea that this is a kind of cultural hangover from the time when 
we were breeding out these people. You know, we were deciding, you know, you violence is fine as long as it's codified, you know. So if you all get together because the guy with a beard says to you, we're going to go and kill those mothers on the other side of the valley because we want their land and their women. That's cool. That's all right. But if you've got people who suddenly get up one morning with a sore head and murder their neighbor, you know, or decide that they, they like the, the woman that the, next, the guy next door has got and so they just kill him so that they can have the woman, that's not cool in a settled society. Uh, not least because these guys won't do what the man with the beard says either. Uh, you know, they're a challenge to, to overall authority. Um, and that fascinated me because on the one hand, it kind of exemplifies a, a, a sort of a mythologized tendency in humans, this sort of the rebellion against authority. Uh, the whole Luciferian, Oscar Wilde thing, you know, um, disobedience is man's original virtue, that whole thing. But it stacks it up against the fact that yeah, if you have too many disobedient people, you can't build a civilization. You know, civilizations are built on the blood and bones of slaves and um, and and sort of compliant uh, workers. In order to have a civilized society, you need the arts, you need uh, writing, you need uh, the, and you need a, a leisured class who can create these things. And the only way you get a leisured class is if they're living off the backs of the poor bastards who are out there in the fields tilling the earth and and bringing in the food. So you're faced with this rather depressing realisation that the civilization that we have is thanks largely to sort of aeons of brutality and, and uh, exploitation. Now, you fit that against the, the other half, this idea of these people who just won't do as they're told, and you've got this brilliant, um, you know, where do you stand, you know? You instinctively think, well, I'm with the guys who won't do what they're told, you know, because oppression is a bad thing. But yeah, but on the other hand, if you don't do what you're told, you, you can't achieve anything, you know? things are Humans achieve things by doing things in groups. I'm very glad to be here in this very civilized Western society, uh, but you know, I, other people have paid a hell of a price over the last several thousand years so that I can be here and enjoy the fruits of it. How do I feel about that? It's it's a it's a very iffy area, um, and and of course it's also a very uh, an area without redemption. Let's say because there, this is not a there's you can't find a comfortable solution to this. You know that's just the way things are, and it's horrible. And whenever I run across something that is, a, you know, just the way things are and it's horrible, I'm always very interested because I think that that's something we shy away from far too much in our society, whether it be the question of how the meat that we eat is is, is uh, slaughtered or uh, issues of violence in society generally or the question of drugs or terrorism. There's a shying away from the sort of the nastier end of this stuff. We don't like to think about it in real terms. We, we mythologize what it's all about. And I'm very interested in that because I, I think, you know, the only, as you'll know from a previous novel, one of my one of my secondary characters says, you know, face the facts. That's the only mantra that, that she has, this character. You have to face the facts. And I, whenever I see human beings not facing the facts, I'm always fascinated to know why that is. You talk a lot about, in this book, about what it means to be human. And you do talk about this idea um, that... We now live in a feminized society. That's what you call it. And, mm. and you bring up a lot, and you have, you also have these uh, women you call the bonobos. Yes, right. It's <laughs> kind of unkind, isn't it? It's somewhat unkind, yes. And so you have a lot of kind of misogynistic ideas bubbling underneath the surface of this book because. You don't seem very you don't seem very happy with the living in a feminized society, although you recognize that it must be. Mm, no, I'm. I, that's that's not the case at all. I am a 
a self I am a feminist uh, you know if, if men are allowed to be feminists I'm not sure what the party line on that is at the moment but I, I am a feminist and I'm very much in favor of feminizing societies because if you look around the world you can you as I mentioned in the novel you pretty much can index link uh, you know how, what status women enjoy in society how much power women have with what with how pleasant it is to live in that society and generally speaking the more power and influence women have uh, the nicer society it is you know to inhabit uh, Women are not good at might makes right, obviously, because, you know, compared the average woman is much weaker than the average man. So, you know, from a very, very early period in our evolutionary history, women were just not going to be up for this this kind of beating each other's skulls in game because they, they were always going to lose. So the one the women that evolved from that context were women who found a way to think their way around that. And I think that's an enduring context. You know, women are much more up for negotiation uh, rather than confrontation. Uh, they're much more interested in maintaining a, a sort of a comfortable status quo for everybody than sort of asserting how important they are compared to everybody else. That's not to say that, you know, women are nice and men are nasty. I mean, obviously not women want what they want in much the same way that men want what they want. The difference is that what women want generally seems to be less socially catastrophic. Uh, <laughs> you know, what women seem to want generally uh, is, you know, to have a reasonably comfortable existence so that they can reproduce and bring up their children in, a, in, a, in a, uh, an environment of safety. Uh, That's and, not the environment we have in this book. This is a no, no, not at all. Uh, <laughs> but what, what men seem to want is basically to be the biggest motherfucker on the block and have everybody else doing what they say. And you know, clearly that is an unfulfillable dream because not everybody can be the biggest mother on the block. So, yeah, it's not that I, you know, that I've, I'm not. A, uh, I don't know what you call it. Uh, um, I, uh, uh, no, uh, um, uh, a woman worshipper. I'm not a gynaidolatra, uh, gyno, 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 is it? I, um, but I see very clearly that feminizing our societies is a way to get a better society. Uh, and I mean, again, if you look at development economics now, the big thing that the development economists are now saying is we have to find ways to get the aid money to the women, because if you give the aid money to the women in these societies, they will spend it in ways that benefit their children and the community at large. Uh, if you get it to the men, they drink it and piss it up against a wall or buy an expensive truck, you know, um... And what's wrong with an expensive truck? Absolutely. We all love these things. But uh, that's, that's the whole point. You know, it's, it's, it's simply that, you know, what women want is more congruent with what would make a nice society than what men want. Um, and that's, that's really as far as I take that argument. As far as the, you know, the sort of the misogyny goes, again, you know, uncomfortable facts. There's, it is becoming increasingly apparent that there are very different modular differences between male and female brains. And this is genetic. This is You, you are born this way. Um, men do, uh, seems that pretty much that men have an, a much, much greater capacity for violence than women. This is not to say women can't be violent. It's just that men are much better at it, if you like. It's the, it's the, the first thing they reach for at a genetic level. Uh, and as I said, it makes sense because, you know, that violence is a losing game for most women. Um, you know, I mean, women might find some way to get a man to do their violence for them. I mean, that's, you know, that's another whole story. But um, so, yes, it's becoming apparent that uh, there is no question that male and female brains are wired differently at, at quite a basic level. This is not to say that, you know, therefore I think women shouldn't become engineers because they're not wired. I mean, that's bullshit. You know, um, men and women should have the, the opportunity to become whatever they want. But we that is not the same thing as, as trying to say that men and women are, are kind of blank slate humans all, and they're all the same inside and it's just, it's just a question of physical difference. 
that has been pretty conclusively demolished by um, you know uh, geneticists and, and other scientists. And the only reason it still hangs on is because the social science lobby are terrified. They don't like this idea, and because they don't like it, they are kicking and screaming as they're dragged towards the the scientific reality of it. So. When when I talk about the bonobo variant, these are women who have had this this tendency not to be violent, tweaked to an extent that they are very very compliant, or so it seems. Because what becomes apparent as the book goes on is that you, I mean you don't meet many bonobos, but what becomes apparent is that this bonobo tendency, it's not what people think it is, you know. And these women may be compliant in the sense that they don't smash you in the face or, or, or you know run you over in or whatever but that doesn't mean they haven't got their agendas and they haven't got very smart ways of, of getting what they want uh, by other means um, so yeah I mean if if it's if it's there there will be a, a certain radical feminist element who will say that that just to say that men and women's brains are different is in itself misogynistic well you know if that's the case hey bust me um, but I think as I think Stephen Pinker says in one of his books uh, he says, if you know, if feminism or radical feminism insists on sticking with this idea that you know men and women are blank slates and uh, you know that there aren't these differences don't exist, then they're tying themselves to the railway track because you know the train is coming and and it's going to be time where we just say, well, no, that's not what the facts indicate. You know, conversely, look, again, conversely, looking at the the issue of race, which arises in the book, what's been done very, very, very effectively, and and for quite a long time now. I mean, I think in 1972, 74, a guy called Lewontin pretty much demonstrated that you know race, in terms of whether you are African or Caucasian or, or Asian, that that is a, a you know a, a very very minimal thing in genetic terms and the the amount of difference between an average african and an average asian or an average asian and an average caucasian is nowhere near as large as the specific differences between two individuals taken from one of those race pools uh, so you know apart from a bunch of crackpot white supremacists down in alabama no one takes that shit seriously anymore you know the, the race thing has just been that's been demolished scientifically and that's why i give no credence to it in uh, in the book but the issue of of the way in which men and women are different at a psychological level that very much is turning out to be a truth and that's why i'm you know that's why it's in the book as such you have a lot of fun with american politics <laughs> kind of uh, so tell us a little bit about jesus land where you where it came from well you know i have to say first of all i didn't invent this you know um it was an american who created the jesus land map uh put it up on on the website uh, you have it was after the 2004 elections and you had basically all the red states that had voted for bush um in the middle and then you'd got canada and canada is joined to uh washington state oregon uh, and california down one coast and then all the sort of the new england and the northeastern corner down the other coast and it also takes in i think uh, michigan uh, that's all kind of blue and joined. And so that lot is called the United States of Canada. And then the pink bit, the red red states bit, is just called Jesus Land. Uh, there's an American who invented that. And there's another another variant on the same thing where the, the Jesus Land component is called Dumb Fuckistan, which, <laughs> which I liked as well. So, you know, it wasn't my idea. But I, I, the more I looked at that and the more I read what political commentators were saying about these kind of fractures that have appeared between the, the, the two Americas, the more it seemed like a very interesting idea. And the more you look into the psychology of the, the, the Republican right, the more you find that it's dominated by some very visceral and therefore, I would guess, genetically derived um, tendencies, attitudes like, you know, fear of the other, terror of what's outside, you know, xenophobia 
to to meld people together against the the enemy that's that's outside. The witch. The witch. Exactly. Yeah. Kill I mean, the witch. Um, so it seemed to me that since I was writing a book about those things, this was also the time to explore this this political element of of America as well. So in in the book. The the future that I envisage a hundred years from now, what's happened is that America has fractured apart along roughly those lines. So you have a northeastern corner, which is centered more or less on New York and has pretty much become a kind of a sort of UN compliant uh, default European state. Uh, the West Coast has, has been influenced increasingly by the Pacific Rim. And again, I mean, this is taken from books I stole from my wife's um studies uh, she's one of the modules in the courses that she was studying was about pacific rim development and it's saying that increasingly western united states is looking out across the pacific rather than in towards the heartland and that's in ethnic terms in the case of who's living here it's in economic terms the business that's done and so forth and is it uh, and also to some extent obviously in cultural terms so the idea is that those states have have, have fractured off and they've called themselves the rim states and they are now part of a pacific rim uh, Understanding, if you like, uh, that's they, and they've turned their back on on the heartland of America. And there are various reasons for that, which I don't want to go into now because I don't want to spoil too much of the book. Uh, and then the rest, what you're left with of heartland America is becomes this very unreconstructed and and kind of increasingly angst-ridden and inward-looking and angry cultural wilderness. And again, there's the the, the sense is that yes, you you know. If you don't reach out to what's outside, you inevitably will damage yourself and you, you, you just sort of close in and become increasingly locked up about things. And so the idea is that you reached a tipping point and those those tendencies have just gone their separate ways and it's torn America apart. But it's worth pointing out that, you know, this this is, you know, as the, this appears in the book, it's a lament for America. It's really a sense of one of the characters who is an American says, you know, I can't believe it's come to this. You know, how did we do this to ourselves? Because, you know, I, mean, I like America. America's been very good to me. The two literary awards that I've picked up so far have both been given to me by American committees. Uh, my books sell well here. Almost all the Americans I've met have been really nice to me, uh, including those I've met in, you know, the, the Jesus Land portion, you know, in the southern states and, and in the Midwest. So I don't have an axe to grind here, but I, I, I kind of, it depresses me to watch America tearing itself apart like this. I would like America not, you know, to, to sort of settle down and, and, and be much more, you know, Canadian in its outlook, if you like. The book is an expression of that. It's a kind of, you know, oh, God, guys, please don't do this, you know. Don't you find it rather ironic that you originally titled your book Black Man in the mm. UK? And that was for a specific plot-oriented reason, because in part it's about racism. It's mm. part of the theme of the book. Here it's titled... 13. Yeah. And also, when you read the dust jacket copy on the UK version, you get a sense of the setup, and part of this has to do with an illegal abortion, and mm. none of which you'd find reading the American version. No. I mean, the American version was practically, it was almost as if it was published in Jesus Land. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. You'd have to talk to my publisher about that. I, I think. I think possibly because the markets involved are bigger or possibly just because of the cultural difference. I think publishing in America is a much more uh, nervy profession than than in the UK. And, I mean, my London editor, when he... We, we, the book wasn't originally called Black Man. The book was originally called Normal Parameters. And my editor in London sat me down and he said, ah, that's a crap title, you know, like that. Come up with something else. So I sat around and I thought about it. And, Simon? Uh, yeah, Simon. Simon oh, Spanton, yeah. Okay. He's he's a great editor. Oh, yes. He'll always tell you what's on his mind. Um, 
doesn't spare me. So I, I, I went away and thought about it, and I came back and said, well, look, the book concerns this guy who is black, and also it can, he's got this genetic modification, which, in a sense, he's the, the future's equivalent of a black man because he's treated in, in a, with the same sort of fear and, 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 um, and hatred as black people are treated in, in you know, contemporary context. So, or black men, certainly, are treated in the contemporary context. And uh, so we could call it black man. So my my London editor goes, ah, that's a great idea. That's what we'll do. I'm off to brief the cover, you know. And I hadn't even written the thing at that stage. <laughs> he came back, comes back with this kick-ass cover with you know the big black guy on the in silhouette on the front and so forth. And and I really like. said, yeah, he sent me this uh, email saying, here's what we've come up with. I think it's really powerful. What do you think? And so I mailed him back saying, yeah, it's it's really powerful. Now I have to write a book that backs it up. <laughs> But yes, I mean, I felt that we were onto something here. I felt that it did encapsulate something that I was trying to get a, get to. You know, this idea of, of of fear of these sort of shadowy figures and witches and big black men coming to steal your woman and you know whatever it might be. But monsters, I, monsters. Yeah, I, I felt I'd got hold of something here. And then when when I told my London editor that I said, you know, they're going to change it. They don't. They're not happy with the title in. Uh, in the US, and he just said, he said, I mean, he, he, he was just bemused. He said, I don't understand it. He said, what, they're, they're scared that there'll be controversy. Controversy sells books, you know. Uh, it's like Sam Goldwyn apparently said once, you know, uh, publicity is good, and good publicity is even better if you can get it. Uh, but if you can't, bad publicity will do, you know, that, uh, that being the implication. Um, you know, if people are going to pick up the book thinking, black man, hell, what's that about? The, my sense of it was, well, that, that controversy can't be a bad thing, surely. My, you know, my, edit, my my publishers in New York obviously thought it would be, uh, and uh, so you know they they were very unhappy. I mean, they didn't force the change; they just they just kept saying how how uncomfortable they were and how unhappy. And in the end, I just said to them, "All right, well, look, change it. I don't mind because it wasn't called Black Man before." So you know, in my European books, very often they don't just translate the title of the book into the language that it's being translated into. They, like the Swedish version of Altered Carbon is not called whatever the Swedish for Altered Carbon is. It is called Seven Eleven Celsius. Because apparently altered carbon doesn't work in Swedish, you know, it just doesn't sound good. So, you know, I, it would have been a bit, uh, what, stroppy of me to, to start sort of saying, ah, you're not changing the title of this book. Delray are here on the ground, you know, they are Americans and they live and work and publish in America. So I'm, I just thought, okay, fair enough. If, you know, if you think this is what works, then we go with that, you know. I know. So it, there's no point in buying a dog and then barking yourself, you know. Uh, <laughs> You know, I have an American publisher because the American publishers are, are you know, they know what they're doing in America. Um, so I, 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 you know, I'm not fussed. I'm really not fussed. But, but I, it is a bit ironic because I did say at the time, I said, well, I don't, I think if you change the title, you're not going to get rid of your controversy because you're just going to end up with a new controversy because the controversy, instead of being, here's a book called Black Man written by a white guy, you're going to have a book that was called Black Man in the UK and now in the US has been changed to 13. And that, in a sense, is almost more interesting controversy. I found it much more interesting. I was yeah. glad. So, you know, uh, who knows? I, I don't know. To only time will tell. I mean, the book is selling well and, you know, everyone seems happy, so I, I'm, I'm fine with that. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm very happy for it to be read by anybody, black or white, and, and then to be called on what's in it, uh, you know, either way. I've had a couple of sort of comments from black people who've read it. I had one very generous review from a, a black uh, reviewer and writer up in Seattle. Uh, and she was very kind. I mean, she she pointed out a couple of things where she felt that you know, as an African American, she didn't buy the 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 blackness of this character in a couple of points because I'd failed to get certain sort of little things right. 
Um, but you know, it, aside from that, it was a very you know it was a very positive review, and it was, it was very generous. I'm, I'm very grateful, uh, and also very glad that she liked it. You know that she enjoyed the novel. And to say I've had a number of other black people who've read it and I've said, oh yeah, you know, it was good. They liked it. That you know, I'm happy with that. Um, Is this novel? It, as I was reading this novel, it seemed like it might be set to a certain extent a prequel for the Takeshi Kovacs future. <laughs> it, it, you really seem to be laying, uh, going back and and uh, retrofitting it. Well, no, not at all. Uh, I, in fact, I mean, I it was a conscious step away from the Kovacs books because. First and foremost, because the the subject matter you're dealing with, like mortality and mm-hmm. unavoidable mortality, and and the prison of your own flesh, the fact that you are who you physically are, you can't get out out of that. And of course, in Kovacs's world, you can. You know, in Kovacs's world, you don't have to die. And in Kovacs's world, you can, if your skin is black and you don't like that, you can shed it and take on a different color skin. Well, thematically, it's 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 quite different. But I mean, it looks like you can. This is this future leads to Kovacs. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that. I mean, I. In the end, it's I mean, it's th- it has similar themes running through it, and and there's a similarity of like there's a colony on Mars and so forth. Right. But that's really just because I think any book that is writing any book about the future more than sort of twenty or thirty years into the future, you've got to have a colony on Mars because it's going to happen. I mean, that's absolutely going to be the case. It, I, it pretty, I'm pretty sure it won't be the way I've described it, but there will be people on Mars. That's coming, you know. Uh, I, and I think to to write a future in which that doesn't happen is very very um, unrealistic, if you like. But yeah, I, I, a number of people once they'd read it did actually sort of get in touch, or they reviewed it, and and they said, you know, uh, oh, this is a you know a prequel, and one of them in fact had this really neat explanation. He said, uh, you know, uh, there's all this Mars tech, the technology that's being used in the in the Martian uh, colony, um, which is very very advanced and much more better than anything that's available on Earth, and and uh, and of course we all know where this is coming from. This has been raided from the Martian um, civilization that they found, but no one knows about it. This is a really subtle point, but it doesn't, and that's just not true. But I, I'm going, I'm I'm reading that and I'm thinking, shit, that was a really good idea. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> Uh, but sadly not. I mean, no, the Mars tech is human. It's 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 just that the corporations have got a whole planet to play with and very few people on it, so they can pretty much do what they want. There's no real restraint of res- on research, and so what they're coming out with is is much faster and and sort of and faster developing than what goes on back on Earth, and that's why the Mars. Plus the whole they it's become a brand. You know, Mars tech has become cool. Uh, but it's human. There's no, there are no Martians in this universe. Uh, you know, it's, it's not yet. No, no, no. Well, no, not at all. Not at all. There aren't any okay. at all. One of the themes of this book that I really liked was the theme of regret, and and, mm-hmm. and uh, Marcelo says this a couple of times: only do what you can live with, and live with what you can do. Yeah, live with what you've done. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Live with what you can do, done. I, it, it's certainly a, a. I mean, the entire book. I already said it's a kind of a lament. For you know, for a lost America and a lament for a sort of lost potential, I think it, it's it's if you like, it's almost a swan song for the alpha male. It's a kind of a sense that you know this is. I mean, it's it's very much like Paradise Lost. You know that this kind of whole idea of this ultra tough, you know, hero. It's such a. It is this. That's Lucifer in Paradise Lost, and it's sort of it's it's so attractive. It's so powerful and and magnetic and so forth but ultimately it's a losing game and so this is a kind of an attempt to sort of set that in context and say my god it is magnificent but you you got to turn your back on this so yeah i mean i i certainly the entire book is filled with with regret but to, to some extent i think most of my books are i think i'm, I'm possibly just a, a sort of gloomy kind of guy <laughs> 
I really liked all the characters in this book. They're all very complex and, and three-dimensional, and, and they all seem to really kind of leap off the page. Tell us, tell me how you came up with major secondary characters as full and rich as, as your primary characters, and then how you kept everything in balance so that we knew who, who to care about. Right. Well, that's you know presupposing that I did keep it in balance, and there are certainly reviewers out there who, who feel that I didn't. Um, I, as I said, the book, the book definitely I feel stylistically is a, a kind of a notch up. And one of the points about that was that I really just, everything I wrote, I threw my heart into. And so when I was developing characters, to be fair, often I was developing characters without really knowing how much of a part they would play later in the book. Uh, but I was, every character I developed, I tried to really get inside of and, and see from their own perspective. And I have to say, looking back at it now, I it's, and I think this is probably the first time I've managed this. I don't think there are any people in this book that I really see as bad guys. Uh, they're all sympathetic if you can just get into the right position to see them from. And certainly, yeah, with the minor characters, I kind of I would be writing the character, and then something would crop up. There would be some hook or angle that I could hang the character off, and it would be like that's the element of sympathy. That's where you go for this. Um, and it, and, and it, it dovetailed very nicely with what I was trying to do because, again, there is the sense that it's not really anybody's fault as such what's happened. Uh, you don't... And, and possibly this is why some people haven't liked the book because you you come away from the end of it with a sense of there's been a lot of violence and a lot of mess and a lot of bloodshed, but none of it has been to... It hasn't been to any great purpose or at least it hasn't been to the purposes that the people who've shed the blood have set out with. Uh and, yeah, I mean, I kind of hope that, you know, each character who dies... I mean, there are some who just... They're, they're cannon fodder, you know, you don't know anything except they appear, they get shot, you know. It's the you know the red shirts from Star Trek. There are a few of those. But hopefully every character that you know anything about who, who dies, uh, you feel something for, and you feel that, that, you know, there's a loss there. I mean, again, interestingly enough, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of still bracing myself for the hate mail from, from you know, uh, Midwest and Southern uh, United States. I really tried to to balance this and to the character the, the few characters who are um, you know of Jesus land origin as it were I've really tried to, to give them sympathetic uh, angling so that you don't sort of feel ah they're a bunch of redneck thug hicks you know these are real people and and they're you know they're as human as anybody else and you know there's one particular character who initially was a bit of a cipher and I, the more I wrote him the more I started to sympathize with him and uh, you end up feeling that you know although he's completely screwed up by by his sort of upbringing and the way he's been twisted by by this kind of republican right outlook on the world what you've got beneath that is a really fine young man potentially you know and it's a tragedy that he ends up the way he does rather than saying ha ha look at this fucking stupid guy from from hicksville you're not saying that you're saying that this is a man who had huge potential you know a young man with with all the right things that we look for in a, in, in a young man but he's destroyed by by who he's become by by the way in which society has warped him and and to some extent that applies to pretty much everybody who's in the book you know that you can you can get on their side without too much effort and 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 thus when they die no matter what the context you you kind of feel a sense of loss you feel that god that shouldn't have happened you know that guy should still be walking around and I, you know if i've succeeded in doing that then i'm i'm very very pleased because i certainly that i feel is a step up from what i've written previously there is a lot of violence in this book. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, and uh, I, some of it has, you have some really interesting combinations of religious imagery and, and violence. 
Uh, oh, you yeah. have a, a Christ the Cannibal. Uh, <laughs> not not, not going to make a lot of people happy. Well, not people who take, take their, their religion seriously, no. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think we need to be honest about this. Religion is pretty nasty stuff. I mean, I'm I'm an avowed atheist, so I would say that. But if you look at the the, the sort of the the ethos of religion, pretty much all religions, this applies to certainly all the ones I know anything about. With maybe not Buddhism, although again, I think if you dig, you can find some some Buddhists doing some pretty nasty things in in even quite recent political history. What you find really at the heart, certainly, of Islam, Christianity, Judaism, the, the you know the, the sort of the dominant patriarchal religions, is a really uh, misogynistic, violent, domineering kind of, of approach to the world. And uh, I don't really see any reason to represent it any other way. I mean, I know that there's there's an in vogue at the moment, there's this idea that you, you mustn't upset religious people, you know, you, you must take their ideas seriously. Why? Why is that, you know? If a guy comes in and says he's been abducted by aliens, you don't take him seriously. If a guy comes in and says he's been talking to Jesus on the phone, you don't take him seriously either. It's I don't get it, you know. Uh, I, I I do not get it. And yes, I think religion. You know, I mean, if you look at let's take Christianity for specifically, you know, because I mean, there's been a lot said about Islam and violence, and I don't really want to retread that. Uh, but let's take Christianity for a moment. You know, the so many born again Christians who are you know practically salivating as they anticipate the return of Christ and the destruction of the material world. Uh, you know, and the sending to hell of millions of human beings just because they didn't sign along the right dotted line in religious terms. You know, and these people, they either haven't thought this through uh, or they are tapping into some very unhealthy tendency in, 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 in their, their, their psyche and their makeup. You know, and I can remember even back when I was a student talking to born-again Christians and there, you know, one in particular who had a roommate that I was seeing, that I was dating at the time, who was also an atheist, and I remember saying to, to the religious one, I said, so, you know, your mate, your friend Judy, uh, is going to burn in hell when she dies. And she said, oh, yes, yes. And I'm saying, but you're going to be in heaven, so she'll be there tortured for eternity uh, in a variety of really unpleasant ways, and you're going to be enjoying ambrosia and kicking back, relaxing with the angels. Doesn't that bother you? And she said, well, you know, she'll have, she's had her choice. You know, she has rejected Jesus Christ as her personal saviour, and, and so she's going to hell, and that's her fault. And I'm saying, yes, but... You know, wake up and smell the burning flesh. You know, uh, how comfortable will you be with that? Could you sit in a room with a, you know, with a torturer and watch them apply branding irons to your friend? You know, would you be comfortable with that? And if you wouldn't be comfortable with it, how is it going to be okay as, a, as an afterlife? And again, most, it seems to me, Christians who believe that kind of shit just have not thought this through. They haven't done the math. And, uh, but they still believe it. They're still comfortable with it. Uh, so, so, you know, by importing these rather violent um, connections in, in the religious imagery in this book, I don't really feel, feel that I'm doing anything, you know, that isn't written on the label. You know, you're, it's not like you're opening this tin and finding that it's, it isn't what says on the outside. You know, it, it, I'm, I'm delving into what's already there, I would say. This is, like many of your books, a, a mystery, and you do a lot of fun stuff with mystery plotting and mm -hmm. i wonder if you care to talk about the, some of the skills that you've acquired as a writer trying to write mysteries that are set <laughs> in the future <laughs> Just... 
Well, I don't know because I, I it was a nightmare trying to get the plot to work, I have to say. Uh, as I said, I, I just wrote a huge amount of stuff uh, and again, the characters got developed because I was interested in the characters. And I, to be honest, you will, you know, if you whether you like or, or don't like this novel is really going to stand or fall on how much you, you can sort of connect with the characters. If you connect with the characters, you're going to love it. If you, for whatever reason, don't connect with the characters, then I don't think you'll enjoy it that much because it's not that fast-paced. Uh... I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I I don't actually feel that I've learned a huge amount in mystery plotting since I wrote Altered Carbon. I, uh, it, it, I guess I must have done, because there are some rather nice reversals that sort of come out in the text. Uh, a couple of them where I've now looked back once they were written and thought, oh, that is quite nice, that is quite a, you know, a twist. But I didn't kind of, those were not designed. They kind of dropped on me and uh, suddenly thought, oh, that's where we're going with this. And so when the, when the twists came, they 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 were they emerged from the mess, as it were, rather than me sitting there plotting them well ahead of time. And I, in a sense, maybe that's why they work as twists, because if I didn't know it was going to happen, then it's pretty sure no one who's reading the book is going to guess that it's it's going to happen. Uh, so I, you know, I'm not, it's not false modesty here. I, I'm I'm not convinced I you know have learnt a great deal, as, you know, as a mystery writer, or indeed that I am an especially good mystery writer. Uh, you know, I'm glad that you think so, and I'm kind of hoping that someone, other readers will think so as well. But I did not come away from this book thinking, uh, wow, I'm so much better at plotting these things now than I was five years ago. Uh, that that I didn't have that sensation. Uh, maybe I am, I don't know. But if I am, it's an unconscious thing. Let's talk about your characters. In particular, the one who really interested me was Segvi. Mm, Sevgi, yeah. Sevgi. Tell us a little bit about how you came to create that character and some of the aspects of her personality, which are really interesting, particularly her, her religion. Yeah, well, I I lived and worked in Turkey for about a year, uh, a little bit little over a year, and I had a Turkish girlfriend for a while, and, and uh, you know, I was pretty much integrated into the society. And uh, I'd always wanted to write a novel with a with a, a Turkish woman at uh, at the center of it because I felt that Turkey I mean Turkey really is the crossroads between the Islamic world and the Western world it, it's it's a secular society made up of of 99.9% Muslims and it is despite its many flaws because you know I mean I'm not going to start you know cheerleading for Turkey it's got a lot of very serious problems to, to resolve to do with human rights issues uh, but to some extent, as an experiment in secular Islam, as an experiment in a kind of a moderate Islamic society run on secular lines, it is a success. And certainly if you compare it with any other Islamic state, uh, it is a massive success. Uh, and it always seemed to me that this was a very... a very, And also, of course, geographically, you know, Istanbul is the bridging point between East and West. It's the, the, you know, the, the Bosporus, the whole thing of, of, of crossing from Europe into into the East. Uh, it seemed to me that, that there was always going to be room for a character who had taken on board the westernizing influences of the, the Ataturk revolution and, and was in that sense Turkish but very western and secular, but at the same time was very much belonged to this eastern tradition and belonged to her to her religion and so forth. And uh, I, th I started writing that, a novel with this character, and she wasn't called Sevgi, she was called something else. Uh, I started writing that novel many, many years ago, and then I, I stopped because I didn't have the time or I didn't, couldn't go back and do the research. And when I was putting this together, I, I, I sort of thought, well, maybe I can use this now. And I started to write her, and as, once I sort of put her into as a New Yorker, you know, first-generation American, but growing up in New York with parents who are Turkish and, and uh, a mother who, in fact, is quite strongly uh, religious, 
uh, but her growing up a streetwise New York kid. Once that started to roll, I was just thinking, this is there's a lot of mileage in this. I can do a lot with this. And yes, she's someone who she's an intelligent woman, and I, you know, like I think basically, and this will be my atheist prejudice shining through again. Her intelligence will eventually demolish her faith because you know those two are are opposed. You know, uh, she cannot take seriously take her faith seriously in the face of her the events that are surrounding her, uh, because it requires an abandonment of reason. Uh, and and so it's she's she's just about hanging on to onto her faith when the book begins. But and, and whether she actually loses it or not is a is a an arguable point. But but what you see essentially is someone who's not prepared to just sit there and say. This is what I believe. I'm not prepared to 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 rationalise it. Uh, uh, it's also quite interesting because I I really seriously believe that the future of Islam is in America, uh, and that's a kind of weird thing to be saying. That right is now, a very odd thing. Why do you believe that? Uh, because because if you look at, the, I mean, Islam's not going to go away. I think this is one of the big problems with with you know the whole sort of the Bush uh, way of dealing with the Middle East. You know, Islam is not something that can be squashed or, or put aside or whatever. It's, it's a massively successful religion. Uh, it's not going to go away. But what will happen to it eventually is that it will modernize uh, and it will secularize. It will basically water itself down in the same way that Christianity has watered itself down. Where that's most likely to happen is in the West. Uh, and in fact, if you look at what's going on in the in in the sort of the Islamic world, when I by that I mean the world of is of people who are Muslims, it's in New York that you have women leading prayers for the first time in centuries. It's in New York that you have uh, the idea that that women you know have just as much rights in the mosque as men. It's it's, it's in it's in America that these the, the the sort of the traditionalism of Islam is being challenged. Uh, most effectively, it's not being challenged in in Iran, in in uh, Saudi Arabia, in uh, Jordan or Palestine. Very much the opposite, in fact. I mean, there's a retrenchment going on there. Uh, and so, yeah, as far as I can see, in a hundred years' time, you're going to have a large number of Muslims in America. I, I don't think they'll be the dominant religion or anything, but certainly far more than you have now. And most of them will be like the American Muslims you have at the moment. They'll be successfully integrated into American society. They'll consider themselves Americans, you know, as well as Muslims. Which is a, this is a trick we haven't managed to do with our Muslims in the UK yet, uh, and uh, and yet they will be the moderating influence. That's where the moderation is going to come from, and that's what's going. You know that that's the future of Islam. You know such that it has a, a positive future. So it seemed to me that this was a this was a great idea that I could you know take this character and and uh, and and go with this. This is a modern Islamic woman a hundred years from now, whose whose outlook on her religion is perhaps not dissimilar to. Christians now who who you know the kind the kind of Christians who who are desperately sort of going through their faith trying to find ways to to make it stay attached to a modern secular world uh, and ultimately I think anyone who does that is doomed to failure and that's why we're seeing a retrenchment in both Christianity and uh, Islam uh, but you know you've got to give those people credit for trying because at least they are attempting to live their faith rather than just hide in the basement Tell us what you've got planned next. Have you started another book? Yeah, I'm writing a fantasy now. I've uh, it, it, all kind of accidental thing. I uh, I had have had for a while these kind of character vignettes from a fantasy context that I wrote almost almost for fun. And in fact, Gordon Van Gelder had one of them uh, as potentially was going to publish it as a short story, but then he decided that it just it didn't go anywhere because obviously it was it was just a vignette. Uh, and anyway, I had these, and I I kind of passed them over to my uh, London editor to have a look at, 
just you know he he said oh well, yeah let's let me read them so he read them and then he comes to me and he says so, wow this these are great these are these are great um so you know how many books is this <laughs> and I go <laughs> they're always looking for a fantasy series I, a trilogy I, right and I look at him and I say uh, well it's you know it's a book you know <laughs> and he goes. It's a kind of godfather moment, you know. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. He goes, uh, how many books is this, Richard? So I go, uh, 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 three? Yes, correct. Have a contract. And that was it. And I'm now signed up to write a fantasy trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, is enormous fun, I've got to say. I mean, it's a whole... I mean, I, I, you know, we've talked before about this, so you know that I, I'm always looking to try to do something different each time to try and stay fresh. I hate the idea of, of becoming a hack. And so, yeah, this is, it's interesting because it's a whole other arena. Uh, I'm, you know, I've been, I'm bereft of my, my usual technological metaphors and, and the sort of fast cyberpunk type world, the, you know, the kinetics of that world. Everything takes ages in this world. You know, you, you've got to get on a horse and spend like a month crossing the desert to go from one city to another. Uh, it's fascinating. It's, 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 it's proving to be quite hard work. Uh, harder work than I thought it would be, certainly. But at the same time, it's it's it's, it's a lot of fun. It's something new, and uh, it's. Well, now, how are you going to get your your books are always very political. Yeah, and, and how are we going to have a political fantasy? Well, it's okay. Well, you know, one of the things that I noticed about, and I, I, I confess, I stress here, I haven't read much fantasy in the last few years, uh, and most of the fantasy I read back was back when I was a teenager and in my early twenties. So I, I may have a slightly old-fashioned view of fantasy. But one of the things that seems to recur in fantasy novels and fantasy series is the idea of the big war. You know, an evil arises, usually in the East, uh, and everyone has to go and bash it. Uh, and, I mean, the, the Tolkien, it's the Tolkien template. This is where everything it derives from, this idea of, of, you know, the evil arises and the forces of light rally, and eventually, after much suffering, they defeat the forces of evil. And I'd always thought that uh, there's a far more interesting book to be written as a sort of fourth part of the Tolkien trilogy is the aftermath of the War of the Ring. You know, because, I mean, generally speaking, you look at the aftermath of the, of the First and Second World Wars and it's such a mess, you know. You've got all these guys coming back, these veterans who are totally fucked up, you know. They can't reintegrate into society or they're missing limbs or eyes or whatever. Uh, there's a... And, and, you know, the way in which... And again, I mean, in America you've had this, you know, with the, the whole Vietnam thing and the sort of post-Vietnam experience as well, what's happened to the guys who fought in Vietnam and came home, you know, to very much not to the hero's welcome that they, they'd thought they'd, they'd receive. And we're now seeing the same shit again it's one of the things that makes me so angry about the bush administration that they've essentially managed you know after 30 years of of common sense to to actually put you back into vietnam essentially here's another war where we can kill lots of young americans um bring them in home in body bags or bring them home so fucked up that they they, they can't live their lives great nice one george uh Anyway, so I, it always struck me that the, there will be an interesting fourth book to be written after the War of the Ring is concluded. And I, that, what I'm what I'm writing, I mean, obviously, I, that, that, I wouldn't be allowed to do that. What I'm writing is a, a, a story that takes place after a similar large war has been fought to defeat. In, in this case, a bunch of guys called the Scaled Folk. And they are a, a sort of a um, reptilian evolved uh, race. Rather. Well, we love monsters. That's ah, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, up, exactly. right up my alley. But you'd, they won't actually be in the, uh, certainly not in the first novel. They are really there as a sort of just a, a mention. And this war is now over. And the, the story really concerns uh, three veterans of that war who've gone back to their separate lives and are trying to cope with the aftermath. And and you've, one, one of the points is that as the book goes on, as the story develops, because there's a, there's a sort of 
a new threat emerges. Uh, as the story develops, you're also getting flashbacks. You're also getting insights into what happened at the, when this war was fought. And what basically happened is these guys were betrayed, and they feel very bitter about the way that they that, that things turned out. It's also the case that in of the three, two of them are homosexual. There's one who, well, a woman and a man. They are they are um, both homosexual. And obviously this is a kind of, you know, mock medieval setting where, you know, being homosexual is really kind of hazardous to health. Uh, so there's all, because I was looking for a way, I, I wanted to import the Kovach sensibility into this. And the problem with importing Kovach into a medieval world is he, you know, and he will get his head cut off in nothing flat because you just don't get to mouth off to people in that context, you know. It's like you start smart mouthing the local liege lord and he'll just have you tortured to death, you know, and there's no comeback from that. So... Um, I was looking for a way in which I could find characters who would have that distance on their own society, would be outsiders. And of course, again, genetics comes to my rescue once again. You know, if you are born sexually different, if your sexual orientation is such that you are an outcast and you cannot show what you are for real, immediately you're apart, you're set apart, immediately you're going to have a distanced vision of, of the world that's around you. And so the idea is that, say, the, the, perhaps the lead character, who's the male gay guy, uh, he is extremely jaundiced about in his view of everything that, that's going on in this world. One, because of his veteran status and the, the, the sort of the way he's seen everything he fought for pissed away. But also because from a very early age, he's had this realisation that he's not like the rest and, and that the rest would hate him if they can only find out what he's like. Uh, so, I mean, I've been told I'm taking a big risk here, you know, fantasy novel with a gay protagonist. Um, I do believe it's been done before a couple of times, though I don't recall by whom. But anyway, I was, you know, fantasy is very often read by sort of teenage boys. And, uh, you know, the whole idea of putting that, that whole questionable sexuality thing in there is possibly going to upset a few people. But hey, you know, that's why I'm here. <laughs> uh, but also, it, it uh, I also love the idea of, of a, you know, a gay guy who who is also a really mean swordsman. Uh, so you know, this is not someone that you're gonna you're gonna start queer baiting because no. <laughs> he's just gonna produce a weapon and skewer you with it, uh, and and yeah, this th- there's a very hard edge on this. This guy is you know, I mean, he he picks his clothes with great care, and uh, he's 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 a sensitive guy in many ways. He's he has, you know, sort of a better relationship with his mum than with his father. But when all is said and done, he's also a man who knows how to slaughter with the best of them. And, uh, you know, you start calling him names in the street, you're going to find yourself uh, cut in pieces very, very rapidly. And I, that always appealed to me, the idea of the, sort of the tough gay. Uh, I think that, that was a, that's a nice, you know, it comes away from the usual the usual gay characters you find in fiction with the sort of sensitivity and, and, and a sort of a non-violent element to them. Uh, oddly enough, I owe Rod Stewart for that. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we've got time to deal with that. <laughs> well, you, you, you can't. Uh, okay. I can't delete that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a Rod Stewart song called The Killing of Georgie. I don't know if you've ever heard it. It's a ballad. And it's about a gay guy who I, I, he grows up in. I, I think the idea is that he grows up in a, a small Scottish village, or it might be that he grows up somewhere in a small town in America. Anyway... He's thrown out by his family when he tells them what he is and he goes to New York and he makes it big in the gay scene in New York, becomes a very successful man about town and is seen at all the sort of opening nights of of, uh, Broadway shows and things like that and and basically is very happy. And the last verse tells how the the singer meets him one night after a a show and and that he tells him that he's in love for real this time and he says he's really pleased for him. And then he leaves the show early, presumably to go and meet his his you know, his new boyfriend and this guy that he's he's finally found love with. And he runs into a New Jersey uh, street gang uh, and gets in a fight with them. 
And the enduring image I'm left with is the fact that rather than getting beaten to a pulp, he gets in a fight with these guys, and he's quite a fighter. Uh, you know, and the reason he dies is because he just gets stabbed in the in the confusion, and he falls and bashes his head on a curbstone, and and that's just too much. By the time the MT guys show up, he's you know, he's dead. Um, and I I always you know from very early age because I was I remember that song from when I was like fourteen, I guess. Uh, I always liked that image of this guy who is you know gay and therefore and, and very much it's it's also that he's very much in tune with the, the gay scene in new york so the the kind of the the over the topness and the 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 sort of the ridiculous um, um queening that, and so forth but at the same time put to the test he turns out to be a pretty mean street fighter you know and he gives a good account of himself although you know he dies uh and i just remember thinking it was a really nice story i liked it and uh, it's a good song too uh, killing of georgie rod stewart uh, but anyway, that has definitely fed into this character. I like the idea of this guy being lean and mean and tough, uh, as well as, let's say, having a great, great dress sense. You know? <laughs> <laughs> now, you're here for Comic-Con. Yes. I'm, and, yeah. and you're still writing the Black Widow comics, or have you done No, no, that's, that's died a death. Uh, I, you know, they, they did not sell. Uh, mm. They or they. They let me write a second a second series. Uh, it was very nice of them because even the first series didn't sell that well. I mean, we we started selling I think forty something thousand copies. By the time we got to issue six, we were down to twenty something thousand. And in comic book terms, that's a disaster. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, even forty thousand isn't great for comic books. It's ironic because if I sold forty thousand copies of any of my prose novels, then my publishers would be dancing in the aisles. Uh, but in comic terms, forty thousand just isn't a lot of comics. Uh, you need to be selling hundreds of thousands before you're, you know, really, really a big success. So anyway, it started at forty thousand, and then it dropped, and that's a big no-no. Uh, but they were kind enough; Marvel were kind enough to let me write. Uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about getting me to write a different character, but I didn't really want to. I was enjoying the character of the Black Widow. They were kind enough to let me write a second series, a second limited edition, uh, limited series, six more, uh, which carried on the story. Uh, and again, these just did not sell in the required quantities, and so it just sort of came to an end. And you know, I, I've not really been in touch with Marvel since, and they've been they've sort of been very quiet, and they got other fish to fry. And you know, I mean, in the end, they're in business to you know to sell comics, and uh, I I didn't sell many comics for them, so uh, it's it's it, there's no rancor there. It's I'm it's oh. just it's a mismatch of of you know what I wanted to do mm-hmm. and what they thought I could do and what the comic book audience, the core Marvel readership want from their writers so you know that's the way it goes it was a lot of fun and I, I now get to play at the misunderstood auteur without actually you know having to suffer the financial consequences of that so uh, yeah it's all good I uh, I am and you know well, what are both... you doing at comic-con then well I'm I've, I'm on a couple of panels but I'm I'm there really my publishers are taking me down there it's I'm not uh-huh. a guest I was a guest back in t- 2005 but I'm not going as a guest of the con this time it's I'm, I'm down there I'm on a couple of panels because they you know they've got stuff they'd like me to talk about, but it, I'm being taken there really for for, for exposure and publicity. Uh, but I mean, you know, the comic book door is still open. I've, I've people at Marvel and also people at, at DC have been very nice to me and, and have mm-hmm. always said, "Oh, you know, any ideas you have, get in touch. Here's my card. Pitch to us. We'd love to you to do something for us." And my own New York uh, prose publishers have also said that you know if I'm interested in doing a graphic novel for them, they they, they look into that as well. So those possibilities are there. And I may well go back and, and have a look at doing something uh, in the future because I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was a lot of fun. But I think it's pretty safe to say I won't be writing any more, you know, core Marvel characters, um, you know, or likewise DC characters. I mean, uh, I'm not cut out to do superhero comics, basically. And that's what it, what it comes Or at least not cut out to write the superhero comics that people want to read. Uh, 
You know, that's an important, an important <laughs> factor there. Uh, you know, if no one's reading you, then you're not communicating. And I, I've always thought that writing has got to be an act of communication. Are any progress on movies of altered carbon or market forces? Altered carbon renewed. The, the option renewed uh, last month for another 18 months. And I'm told there's a lot of enthusiasm for the project still. Uh, you know, but we are no further forward than we were when, when they started. Uh, there are still no big names attached. Uh, well, obviously, apart from Joel Silver and mm. Silver Pictures, but I mean, in terms of getting like a star or a director uh, on board, I, there, there's no movement there. Market Forces comes up for renewal in uh, November, I think, and I have no idea whether they'll renew or not. That's that's still out there, uh, and I, I probably won't know until the week before they decide, or the week before it happens. So, uh, yeah, we'll see, but... Uh, you know, Hollywood, it's a very, very slow-grinding machine, and uh, they, nothing happens overnight there. So you, you just got to put it to the back of your mind and try not to think about it too much. <laughs> Keep your fingers crossed, though. Eh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've been speaking with Richard Morgan. His new novel is titled Black Man in the UK and 13 in the United States. Thank you for joining me, Richard. My pleasure. <laughs> You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.